So somewhere along the way, in early childhood, you and I picked up a strong message. And that message is it's simple and straightforward. It's three words. It's usually directed to somebody or front to you from somebody in authority over you, and that message is don't talk back. Somewhere along the way, I, I learned this lesson from my parents uh, that talking back was not something a, a kind, respectful person does. And there are certain instances where this message has weight and substance and significance, uh, but it, it's, it's something that doesn't have a universal application always. And we need to learn those times and spaces. And it where it's, it is appropriate and okay to talk back. Uh, and I'm, I have a three-and-a-half-year-old son, and so I'm in the tension uh, of, of this, trying to create some, uh, some structure, structures and a strong center for him to draw towards. And, and so I have felt this impulse in me to you know, just play the authority card and, and say, don't talk back. And a few uh, months ago, we were uh, on vacation, and uh, I was walking around with uh, my children in, in the stroller. And uh, Robin was somewhere doing something, and I, I had the children, and Beckett is it's a double stroller. Beckett's in the front, Berkeley's up top. And Beckett, who's three and a half, we were walking past a donut shop. And I see it out of the corner of my eyes, and it was one of those moments where it's like, okay, I'm going to speed it up and hope, <laughs> hope he doesn't notice. And he says to me, hey, hey, Dad, why are you walking past the donut shop? <laughs> and I said, <laughs> oh, man, how am I going to... I don't have an answer to that. And, but I said, you know, we're, we're just not going to have a donut today, buddy. And he very quickly responded by saying, but dad, we're on vacation. <laughs> he knows <laughs> at a very early age, he knows the important life lesson that calories don't count when you're on vacation. But I saw this as, as a teachable moment, an opportunity for me to lean in and provide some parental wisdom. And so I stopped the stroller and I leaned down and I got in his face, I looked him directly in the eyes and I said, Beckett, do not tell your mother about this. <laughs> And we went into the donut shop, and we got Robin a donut, too. So. <laughs> but <clears throat> we have these instances where, where we learn that we can actually, uh, we have these voices and these influences in our lives, these uh, temptations or things that want to pull us away from center in our lives uh, that we can talk back to. We, we know that over time in our lives that there are voices where we can learn 
an appropriate level of, of distance and discourse with. And one of those voices is, is what we're most familiar with is this sort of inner voice or this inner critic, uh, this, this voice that was externalized for me in, in the form of, of my son. But sometimes, you know, it, it, it is that voice when you're walking past the donut shop and it's like, why are you walking past the donut shop? As a very tame example of really sticky and tricky situations where there is some internal voice that comes from somewhere that often it feels like we don't have very much choice or authority over that voice inside of us that wants to pull us in with the current uh, that, that is going to pull us away from our center of, of strength and joy and peace and, and in what followers of Jesus would say, the voice of Jesus himself. And so the question I want to explore today is how can we learn to exercise choice over our inner voice? One of the things that the first followers of, of Jesus kind of caught on to was this idea uh, that there, you have a choice of, of the voice you listen to. Popularly in culture, we have that image of, you know, an angel sitting on one shoulder and a demon sitting on the other, and we're somehow trapped in between uh, our virtues and our vices. But how do we learn from the life of Jesus how to exercise choice over our inner voice? How can we learn to take every thought captive, as one of Jesus' first followers named Paul put it, take hold of every thought and filter it through what it looks like a follower of Jesus might do? So we'll hold that thought. We're starting a series today called The Irreligious Jesus. And we're going to, for the next six weeks during Lent, we're going to explore the life of Jesus through the lens of this season of Lent, this season where we come into contact with the fragility of human life and the futility of human effort to make the change that we want to see in ourselves and in the world. Uh, you know, Bono, uh, the lead singer of U2, once said, uh, early in his life, he said, uh, you know, I can't change the world, but I can change the world in me. And then uh, later in his life, where he is now, he said, you know what, actually, after all of his efforts and activism and, and things like that, a global a rock star and figure, he said, actually, I can change the world, but I can't change the world in me. This is a recognition of, that Lent invites us into, that we need to look to the example of Jesus to learn what it means to be human in the way of Jesus that acknowledges and recognizes our shortcomings so that we can be more dependent on the one who has overcome all things and who can create, who can change the world out there and in here. So that's what we'll be exploring. And in this season of Lent, we're, we're often handed an invitation to uh, to give up something. There are more options than that, but that's the most 
a strategic way that we learn how uh, we become over time dependent on people or things or sort of creature comforts that kind of take the place of God. One of my favorite definitions of this biblical idea of sin, the the futility of our human efforts and, and the fragility of our life that leads to death, this definition of sin and brokenness is, is the attempt, the human attempt to meet our infinite need, our need for God, by our own finite resources. The attempt to meet our infinite need with our own finite resources. And Lent is the season where we set things aside in order to root out our pride. Where we set things aside things that take the place of God or make us feel like we're somehow in a God-like position of control over our lives or the people in our lives, where we set those things aside to root out that tendency within us so that we can foster dependency on God. And that's the invitation of Lent. And so we're going to start and see how Jesus himself did this in his life. At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, He was, before he did anything, before he uh, healed anyone, before he taught the Sermon on the Mount, before uh, he walked around embodying and inaugurating the kingdom of God, Jesus was baptized by his cousin John the Baptizer in the River Jordan. And in that moment, uh, this this sort of divine parting of the clouds happened, and, and the voice of God the Father says to Jesus, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Before Jesus had even taken the test, he'd, get, he'd gotten an A+. And then he's sent into the wilderness by God for a 40-day fast and then to be tested and tempted by the devil, by God's adversary, the accuser, the Satan. And this is the story that we're going to read this morning, Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read through 11. But this, if you have grown up in the church or been around the church for a little while, this is a familiar story. And as I was preparing this week, I read it in a different translation, and it's really more of a paraphrase. It's called The Message. And it's... just gives us a different way into this that I find particularly helpful. So I'm going to read from the message uh, translation this morning. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Next, meaning after his baptism, Jesus was taken into the wild by the Spirit for the test. The devil was ready to give it. And Jesus prepared for the test by fasting 40 days and 40 nights. Now, if you are not a follower of Jesus this morning, you're like, well, uh, it took approximately 30 minutes for these churchy people to start talking about the devil. (laughs) There we go. Uh, And look, you know, maybe you grew up in the church or maybe you grew up in a tradition of the church where uh, there was an overemphasis on the devil. Like there was a devil under every stone or, you know, the devil made me do it sort of mentality. There's, there's extremes here. 
And the church has often been guilty at blaming all of its wrongdoing on the devil without claiming responsibility for itself. But it, we've also tended to underemphasize the reality of the, the reality of an evil force in the world, a force that's opposed to all that is good and true and beautiful, a force that wants to steal and kill and destroy, a force that is the father of all lies, as Jesus himself says it. And Jesus goes, uh, well, and I, I love this quote, St. Teresa of Avila in the 15th century, she said this, I am quite sure I am more afraid of people who are themselves terrified of the devil than I am of the devil himself. <laughs> uh, this is the primary way that the devil exercises influence over people is by casting this, this great and terrible shadow that the devil is some the Satan is somehow some insurmountable force. But that doesn't at all seem to be Jesus' perspective at all. Jesus acknowledges the devil as a reality, but puts it in its proper place, one that can be engaged with. And, and, and so we can come at these from, from different ways. We, when it comes to the, the Satan or, or temptation itself, Right? Where does temptation come from? Well, it's probably coming from the Satan. And so, on the one hand, we can have a posture where we want to completely avoid temptation in order to judge it. Right? We, we separate ourselves from it and say, how could those people be like that? And this, is, this has sadly been the posture of the church for a long time. Or the church has wanted to separate itself for understandable reasons, but in, in an approach that is highly judgmental of people in the world rather than a position of compassion. Or the, the other extreme, and, and this is particularly the, the, the temptation of, of those of us who have maybe grown up in the church or around the church who have been told our whole lives to avoid, 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 judge, judge, judge. That is the worst thing you could possibly do. And then you, you indulge in that temptation a little bit and you find out that, oh my gosh, I wasn't struck by lightning or immediately spontaneously combusted. And guess what? I kind of enjoyed that thing. And so we can swing to the opposite pole where we embrace temptation in order to indulge it, where we give in to the passions and desires that are latent within us, and they become the things that we ultimately become enslaved to. We think that in our freedom we are choosing something when really it has, gra it has grasped us. But Jesus avoids these two temptations of temptation on either side, and he shows us a third way forward, and that is we can engage temptation. That's what the season of Lent is for. That is the posture of the follower of Jesus, to engage temptation in order to overcome it. It loses its power over us. Whatever that thing, that temptation, that singular force that wants to draw you in and your pride to to surrender your allegiance to God, whatever that thing is, it can actually, over time, when you're following Jesus, it can lose its power over you, and you can overcome it. This is what is so powerful about uh, the 12-step movement. Is it, it's, it's following, 
the example of Jesus that shows us how to engage some form of dysfunction in order to overcome it. And that's the posture of Jesus, and that's what happens. So we continue on. So Jesus is, is tempted three times. This first temptation, we continue here. So he was 40 days in, uh, in the wilderness, fasting. And I love what we're about to read here, because I think we think often that the 40-day fast was the test. But that's not actually what it was. The 40-day fast was preparing Jesus for the test, for temptation. So that left him, of course, in a state of extreme hunger, which the devil took advantage of in the first test. So Jesus is at a point where he's about to engage in a form of conflict when he's hungry, he's alone for 40 days, he's probably angry, and hangry, and he's tired because he's been camping for 40 days. (laughs) So he is, in other words, Jesus right now is not on his A game. And remember, Jesus is 100% divine, yes, and 100% human at the same time. Jesus is experiencing significant painful temptation here. This is a real thing, and Jesus is not at his best right now. And that's the moment when temptation finds its way in in the first test, which is at Jesus' physical weakest point. This is the accuser's strategy. When we are at our physical weakest, when we're hungry, when we're angry, when we're lonely, when we're tired, that is when the temptation to pride rears its head. Since you are God's son, not if, since, because, because, you are God's son. Speak the words that will turn these stones into loaves of bread, the devil says. Jesus answered by quoting Deuteronomy. It takes more than bread to stay alive. It takes a steady stream of words from God's mouth. You see, at, at, at Jesus' weakest point, he falls back on something that is stronger than him in his weakness, which is the word of God in him. He doesn't have anything in his belly, but his soul is full of the promises and goodness of God. At his weakest point, Jesus relies on the strength of God. And so that uh, St. Jerome, uh, in the third century, he paraphrases this in a way that I think is, is helpful. If anyone is not feeding on the word of God, that person is not living. If anyone is not feeding on the word of God, that person is not living in the purest, richest, most full sense. We're somehow not as much as what God dreams that we could be and become if we're not engaging in that steady stream of the, of the promises and, and, and presence of God that comes through the Scriptures. Then Jesus is engaged in a second temptation. For the second test, the devil took him to the holy city, meaning Jerusalem. And he sat him on top of the temple and said, since you are God's son, jump. The devil goaded him by quoting Psalm 91. Ah, even the the devil knows his Bible. 
He has placed you in the care of angels. They will catch you so that you won't as much, you won't so much as stub your toe on a stone. The strategy here from the Satan is to first go to Jesus' physical weak point, but now the devil goes to Jesus' spiritual strong point. By quoting the character of God and saying, you won't eat, God won't eat, allow you to get hurt. You're like, you are the chosen one. And if you were to jump off and, and, and threaten God's project to heal and redeem and restore all things, like God would, would have to come and rescue you. And, and this would not only prove to you that you are the Messiah, but it would prove to everyone else who's there as well. And then Jesus countered with another citation from Deuteronomy. Don't you dare test the Lord your God. Jesus knows God's faithfulness and trustworthiness and love. And he knows that we cannot put God into impossible circumstances and force God's hand and say, God, if you really love me, why did this terrible thing happen to me? Jesus pushes away from that. And then the third temptation is Jesus' sort of vocational nexus point. This is the thing that Jesus has come into the world to do. And it's presented to him. For the third test, the devil took Jesus to the peak of a huge mountain and he gestured expansively, pointing out to the earth's kingdoms how glorious they all were. Then he said, they're yours. Lock, stock, and barrel. Just go down on your knees and worship me. And they're yours. Jesus is presented with an opportunity to rule all things for good. Just in a twisted way. And Jesus sees this for what it is, and he pushes back, and Jesus refuses this offer. This refusal was curt. Beat it, Satan. Michael Jackson cues in the background. He backed his rebuke with a third quotation from Deuteronomy. Worship the Lord your God and only him, and serve him with absolute single-heartedness. Worship only God. And the test was over. The devil left, and in his place, angels. Angels came and took care of Jesus' needs. And so we see these, these three temptations and these, these three tests, and we see that ultimately, this has what it, we see in a moment the whole history of God's people that from the garden forward, Every generation has been presented with this test, and one after another they have all failed until Jesus. And Jesus comes, and he passes the test. Jesus bests the Satan's tests. Jesus is the one 
who can overcome temptation. Jesus is the one who can, in, under unbelievable pressure, under unbelievable circumstances, under the temptation to do, the, do good things, the good things, the great things in the wrong way, Jesus pushes that aside. And he, he passes the test. Jesus passes the test that each one of us, in countless ways, throughout our lives, have failed. And by the grace and love and mercy of God, the fact that Jesus passes this test is, is a gift that is extended to each one of us. And we can learn from how Jesus passes this test so that we can overcome here and now in our own tests and temptations. And so what is it that we learn from Jesus passing the test in this way? We learn that Jesus puts an end to using God as a means. Jesus puts an end to using God as a means. For each of these tests, it's all centered around his ability to use God to meet his own needs, and not just his, but the needs of the whole world. But to use God as a means to an end, rather than pursuing God as the goal of all things. And between us and that goal is the cross, the cross that demands and invites us into self-sacrifice, to be truly for the sake of others is to put these temptations aside to serve our own needs and trust that when we seek the kingdom of God, when we seek God as the goal of our lives, everything else that we need will be given to us. Jesus himself says this in Matthew 6, 33. The, the sort of crux of the Sermon on the Mount is seek the kingdom of God and God's righteousness and everything else will be given to you. And that's what we see at the end here. Jesus passes these tests and the angels come and feed him and care for him and encourage him. And then as Jesus continues along, this is, this is not the only time that Jesus will be tested. At, at, at the point, kind of halfway point, as Jesus makes the turn in his life and his ministry towards Jerusalem, where he's going to face the cross, where he tells his disciples that, hey, this is not going to end well in the way that you're expecting or thinking it might. Matthew 16, Jesus' disciples just get it. They name, Jesus, you are the Messiah. And from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And Peter took him aside, kind of his, his uh, head disciple, he pulls him aside and he's like, hey, Jesus, no, don't even start to talk about that. This shall never happen to you. I won't let it happen to you. I won't let these religious people kind of get their claws into you. No, 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 it's not going to happen. You are going to overcome. And Jesus turned to Peter and he said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You have no, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now this is like, whoa, Jesus, that's harsh. 
But I think it's important to see what's happening here. I don't think Jesus is as much calling Peter Satan as he is addressing that Peter has become the mouthpiece of God's enemy. And he's saying, no, 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 I know this test. Get back over there. Get in your proper place. This has no place here because you are only thinking in human terms, Peter. That's where Peter comes into this. And Jesus teaches us that the way that we can understand and know and recognize all of this is by applying his same strategy to our own circumstances and situations. The theologian Frederick Dale Bruner puts it this way. Where the church feeds voraciously on Scripture, she, bless you, she will be given the guidance she needs to minister to her time. When we understand the story that God is writing in your life and in the world and through this place, when we take hold of the mission and the vision that God has given to us, and we see it through the lens of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, when we trust fully and completely that no matter what, when we pursue God in the fullness of who God is, that all of our needs will be met, and we do not need to cling to anything, we'll know and we'll trust in the goodness of God to provide us with insight and direction on how to meet the needs of others because we trust that our needs have been met. And so we have an option here. How do we speak back? How do we talk back to this inner voice? Well, the way that I frame it that's helpful for me is to think in in, in sort of these two terms. There's the one, which is the advocate. This is the voice of Jesus. This is the voice of the Spirit who wills your best. But there's also the the voice of the accuser, as we've just seen. Both voices are speaking to you constantly. But which one are you going to listen to? Which one are you going to focus on? Which one are you going to tune in to? Because whichever one of these voices you you tune into you will turn into. If you're listening to the voice of the accuser, you will become one. But if you are listening to the voice of the advocate, you will become one for others. If you are listening to the voice of of that inner critic who criticizes everything you make, it's just charming at your ear all the time, you will become a critical person. Or you can become a coach. You can say, hey, the way you did that thing, great effort. Let's tweak it this way and move you in this direction. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Let me help you. Let me come alongside. These are the two options that we have at all times. So which one will will we become? And the first step in doing this is to memorize a verse or a passage of Scripture this week. Super straightforward. This is what Jesus has done. He has taken in and metabolized scripture so that when he hears the voice, he can counter it with truth. And this is uh, what somebody, a a fourth century monk uh, with an incredible name, Evagrius Ponticus. 
It just sounds like he walks elegantly or something. Who has an incredibly titled book, which is called Talking Back, a monastic handbook for combating demons. <laughs> okay, apparently I think that's way more awesome than you might. But what, what you discover in this book is, is, is not this crazy, weird, maybe semi-psychotic person who has lived in the desert without people too long. What he's talking about and addressing are these intruding thoughts and these critical voices that exist within us. And the way, the way that he prescribes to heal that is by following what Jesus says. This is what he says. Jesus handed on to us, along with the rest of all his teaching, what he himself did when he was tempted by Satan. Next slide. In the time of struggle, when the demons make war against us and hurl their arrows at us, these, these critical and intruding thoughts, let us answer them, talk back to them from the Holy Scriptures lest the unclean thoughts persist in us and enslave the soul through the sin of actual deeds and so defile our souls and plunge our souls into the death brought by sin. So the way that you combat these demonic thoughts, if you want to think of them that way, or these critical thoughts, is by countering them and talking back to them with the truth of Scripture. And this isn't just like this is more than just a mantra or helpful sort of positive talk, as helpful as that might be in given moments. There is a more powerful resource available to you, which is the Word of God which created the universe, the cosmos, and your life. And it is more powerful than any negative voice that you might hear or you might speak. It is more powerful than that. And when you can lay claim of that in your heart, by memorizing it and sowing it deep into the soil of your soul, you become more powerful than that. You don't even realize the extent to which the Spirit of God is desiring to empower you. The strength that God has made available to you, the resources that God has given to you by grace through faith. And so if you want to start somewhere, if you're looking for a place to start, here's just... I just picked one. So here's one. And, you, and if, you, if you, you know, send me a video this week or a voice recording or come to me and, and you know, do the, the Bible memory thing, I'll, I'll give you a gold star. <laughs> I have told you these things, Jesus says in John 16, 33. I have told you these things, my beloved brothers and sisters, so that in me, in Christ alone, you may have peace. And peace that passes all understanding. Because in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. Be courageous. Because I have overcome the world. And what if, friends, what if we believed this? And what if we lived like this was true? And what if we lived from this place of peace in all that we did and in all that we said and in all 
that we longed to become. What if? 